Hi folks, it's lovely to be with you again, and I trust that you're traveling better than expected during these strange COVID days. They've certainly helped me appreciate so much of what I earlier took for granted. It's an even greater gift to be able to come to scripture. Whatever else, God's word stands firm. We can build our lives on it. So today we're continuing our series on Matthew's celebrated Sermon on the Mount, looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. To get us going and to provide a bit of context, a few quick comments on Matthew and then discipleship and the sermon itself. Matthew was likely written to help Jewish Christians understand what it meant for them to follow Jesus. And as in all ancient documents, Matthew's beginnings and endings tell us a great deal. He begins with two great figures from Israel's past, Abraham and David. What unites them is God's concern for all nations. Abraham, as you know, was called to be a blessing to the nations, and it was to David that all nations gathered. Matthew then ends with Jesus sending the eleven to make disciples of all nations, and eventually that's us. So clearly, mission and discipleship for all nations are central to Jesus. And of course, central to discipleship is teaching, hence the Sermon on the Mount. Now the point is, it's not enough simply to give my heart to Jesus or to come to him to be healed, as do so many in Matthew. Because Jesus is fundamentally about transformation, we need to submit lifelong to his teaching. That's the point of the parable in Matthew 22. A chap is graciously invited to a royal wedding feast, likely his best meal ever, but then finds himself evicted for not wearing the appropriate garment. We are all invited to become Jesus' friends, but on his terms, not ours. Change is not just expected, it is required. But change is where things get tricky. Israel had long ago rejected the idea that humans could find their own meaning, whether in creating their own gods or through self-reliant wisdom. That is what we now know as Hellenic philosophy. And if anything, history has proven them correct. For Israel, only the word of their unique Lord could bring life. So imagine Jesus' hearers' consternation when very early in the sermon he says, don't think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I mean, why say this unless that's exactly what it was going to look like? And then there's that repeated phrase throughout chapter 5, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Now notice that Jesus mostly quotes Torah, though sometimes in summary form. Can you imagine Moses coming down the mountain and saying, well, Yahweh said this, but I say unto you, not so much. On my view, this is not Jesus as a new Moses, which is how he is commonly seen. This is Jesus acting as though he is Yahweh, reconstituting a new people of God around himself. It's one thing for Jesus to be the messianic son of David, but Lord, that's something else entirely. This is why Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, looks a lot like Sinai. It's also why immediately thereafter, in chapters 8 through 9, Matthew has Jesus performing 10 astonishing mighty deeds, again as in the Exodus. It's Jesus' unparalleled display of authority, doing what only God can do, though notice not through plagues but healings, that justifies his putting his teaching above Torah. In other words, 
being God's renewed people, whether Jew or Gentile, is no longer about being ethnically Jewish, nor observing the demands of Torah. It is instead about following Jesus' teaching. No wonder folks are upset. It's also a massive shift for Jewish Christians. Now, I have to say, this is such an extraordinary claim. And Matthew is so matter-of-fact about it that I cannot but believe Jesus did in fact say and do these very kinds of things. As far as I can see, there's no other way, historically speaking, to explain them. And if this is true, it fairly thunders Jesus' own sense of identity, as staggering as it might seem to us. I think Jesus knew himself to be the Lord among us. Now, if that's true, what we're talking about today is pretty serious stuff. These are not gentle recommendations, some things we might wish to consider or not. And it's why at the end of Matthew, Jesus announces a series of woes upon Israel's hostile leadership and its temple. We ignore Jesus' words to our mortal peril. I grant you this is not popular language, especially when love your neighbour has been elbowed aside by thou shalt not offend me. But think about it. We've all just experienced what happens if we don't take seriously a tiny virus. We are far more vulnerable and fragile than we care to admit. Here in Matthew, we're dealing with the Creator Lord himself. Perhaps the earliest and toughest lessons we humans have to learn, whether in throwing a five-year-old tantrum on the floor of the supermarket or a more sophisticated 45-year-old one on the streets or a TV talk show, is that I am neither the centre of all things, nor is my offence the heart of the moral universe. This is all bigger than us. Now, with all this in mind, Jesus' sermon opens in chapter 5 with his pronouncement of eight blessings, the justly famous Beatitudes, and if anyone can bless, it's surely Jesus. But notice where he begins, with those who are poor in spirit, that is, those who know they cannot please God in their own strength. And that, by the way, would be all of us, whether we acknowledge it or not. To them, Jesus says, congratulations, this is for you. Strikingly, unlike Sinai, there are no curses. Though Jesus does warn of the persecution that comes with following him. Living for him will mean living against the self-assertive grain of our culture. Next, Jesus immediately addresses the aforementioned tension between his teaching and Torah. And this makes good sense. In scripture, blessings are usually associated with the right response to God, and Torah is about nothing if not what God requires. Now, what happens here is debated. On the one hand, Jesus can be seen as clarifying or intensifying the law. On the other, there are places where Jesus simply says, no more doing what the law allowed. And that's to say nothing of his apparent repeal of ritual purity and of clean and unclean foods later on in chapter 15. For me, then, the tension is neither between correct and incorrect interpretation of the law, nor between true righteousness and legalism, nor is it a matter of showing how Jesus fits within the law. For me, the problem with all these views is that they start in the wrong place. They start with the law 
when they should start with the one who gave it. On this view, the Lord Jesus is warning them that his teaching, regardless of what they or we might think, is in fact the fulfilment of everything the law and prophets pointed to but could not bring. In sum, Jesus is about lifelong discipleship, not to Torah, but to him. As Matthew concludes, all authority is now exercised by Jesus. Now, whereas chapter 5 dealt with Torah's commands, our section deals with three acts of righteousness. And do note, they're not commanded. They're simply assumed. This is what righteous folk do. To speak for myself, uh, this is a bit of a wake-up call. Right? Most of us pray. Some might even be generous. But fasting? <laughs> Jesus' point throughout is singularly clear. Do these things to be approved by others, and that's all we'll get, their approval. And good luck with that. Others can neither fill us with God's spirit nor resurrect us. However, do these things before God alone, and he will be the one who rewards us with both spirit and life, and so much more. Now, I understand some of us might be a little uncomfortable with rewards language. Isn't this all about grace? Well, yes, it is absolutely true that none of us could ever earn God's favour. But that's not the same thing as his rewarding faithfulness. And here he clearly does. The first of these three acts is almsgiving, being generous to the poor and to those who cannot repay us. And why? Because that's who God is. It's how he treated Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. And he's generous to us indeed far beyond anything we could ever repay. As his children, and not those of Darwin, Marx or Nietzsche, this should be what characterises us too. Now, when Katie and I first joined our local church in Fort Langley, Canada, we were struck by a number of things. Prior to the service, they had a rotating series of three or four slides, one of which simply had the word generous with its dictionary definition. We also noted that they rarely took up offerings. As I got to know the pastor, he explained why. God had spoken to him about encouraging a spirit of generosity in every part of our lives. This included being welcoming to everyone, being gracious in our speech and open-hearted in our lives together, blessing the local community, sharing ministry opportunities, whether worship or teaching, and absolutely repudiating church politics. Instead of sermons urging us to give, there would be the occasional announcement. Dear friends, we wanted to let you know that last week, thanks to your generosity, we visited the local mayor's office and offered to renovate all the kitchens in the council's old folks' home. Why? We donated a fully featured bed to the regional hospital. Or, Folks, there's a church plant down the road. They're not part of our movement, but they love the Lord. We heard they were having a rough time financially, so during the break we dropped by, and in Jesus' name and on your behalf, we gave them a substantial check to help out. Every Christmas, individuals would take cards from the church to give to local businesses, thanking them for their presence in the community and, of course, buying a little something at the same time. But they never took up Sunday offerings for the church. Funnily enough, the church never lacked for money, but instead had one of the most generous aid budgets in the country for a community our size. Generosity. 
Now, we don't have any records of folks in Jesus' day being trumpeted so that others could take note of and praise their generosity. But we do know that trumpets announced the beginning of fasts and almsgiving was thought to improve the efficacy of those fasts. So Jesus might have had something like this in mind. Either way, Jesus declares that such, that such ostentatious givers were not actually giving. They were buying, buying glory for themselves. He says the hypocrites, that is self-deceived, because their real motivation was their own appearance and not the well-being of others, let alone God's glory. Obviously, Jesus' disciples don't stop giving. We just do so quietly, before God, constant, every day and new every morning, in kind looks, kind words and kind deeds. Prayer, too, is assumed. It's what the righteous do and is expected of all of Jesus' followers. And again, the issue is not posture, whether standing, kneeling or walking, but the motivation. Nor does Jesus forbid public prayer. He will later talk about folks gathering in his name and praying. The issue is, again, ostentation. It's praying so that I might be seen by others. And to be honest, this strikes a bit closer to home. We all know folks for whom prayer is their moment to shine. The stance, the cadences, the lines, the magisterial tones, often in lengthy prayers, but it can happen in short ones too. Do you remember when we're asked to offer just a single line of prayer during a retreat? What's the first thought that often comes to mind? How can I come up with a memorable one-liner? You know, believe me, look, I know all about this. Try being a visiting speaker in the pre-service prayer time, or perhaps at the national conference. Why do I often hesitate? Because I need to make this a good one. And whatever else you do, Rick, don't stumble over your words. Right? Am I right or am I right? Well, it's a good thing that I'm the only one who has to deal with this kind of thinking. Yes, it is a responsibility to pray on behalf of others. But genuine, thoughtful prayer that helps and inspires congregations is one thing. Being the great man or woman of God with a mesmerizing prophetic prayer to be wondered at even over lunch. That's another matter altogether. Nor is Jesus against lengthy prayers. There might be a lot to be said. What he forbids is length for length's sake, as though the longer the prayer, the more impressive and more likely to be heard. In fact, there's some evidence that pagans would multiply titles in order to get their God's attention. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> well, it's not so for us. But then, if, as Jesus says, our Father already knows what we need, why bother praying at all? Simply because prayer is not just about provision or getting things. It is fundamentally about persons and hence relationships. We pray because everything is relational and God is interested in all of life. So how should we pray? Well, we all know the real Lord's Prayer, don't we? O Rick, who ought to be in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it should be done in heaven. Give to thyself this day thy heart's every desire and stint thou not. And graciously forgive all thy known trespasses, which in truth are but mine indiscretions. Yea, verily, endearing peccadilloes. But make sure that every other jerk gets exactly what's coming to them. For thine, O Rick, is, or at least should be, the kingdom, the power and the glory. And you can adjust names accordingly. Well, Jesus is not unmindful of our need for guidance and hence his renowned prayer. 
Some traditions make a practice of reciting in full, and that's surely fine. However, I suspect that Jesus' aim is to model the kinds of things we need to keep in mind. And we'll see there are three requests for God, followed by three for us. And can I suggest the order is important. The first three acknowledge the Father's priority in all things. Everything begins with him. As Eugene Peterson once said, since it was God who spoke first, everything we do, including prayer, can only and ever be a response to his initiative. The second three are for us and all express our profound dependence. Without food we die, we desperately need forgiveness and deliverance too. In other words, God is the creator and we are his creatures. He depends on nothing. All things, us included, depend on him. Unsurprisingly then at its heart, this is a cry for God's kingdom on earth and that we be kept from our generation's self-assertive and self-reliant apostasy. That's worth reflecting on for a minute. Most striking, however, are the words with which Jesus says we should begin. Our Father. Although Israel scriptures refer to God as Father some 15 times, nowhere do we find God directly addressed as Father. There are a couple of contested examples in the Jewish literature of Jesus' day, but Father is clearly not the common form of address. Alas, in our experience, Father can sometimes carry disastrous connotations. Many, many years ago, our church was out sharing the gospel in the wee hours of the morning in one of the roughest parts of the city of Melbourne. My pastor was trying to explain God to a battered, sleeping, rough 13-year-old boy. He's like a father, he said tenderly. I'll never forget the thermonuclear reaction. If he's anything like my da-da-da-da-da, old man, you can da-da-da-da-da. And if the numbers are anything to go by, similarly for many young women. Father can conjure up terrifying footfalls in the hallway late at night. So be careful here. However, I'm not suggesting we should drop Father. Some of us were blessed with wonderful dads. My own father had a profound influence on how I think of God. More importantly, Father is the word that Jesus himself chose. And he surely also knew about good and bad dads. They are hardly a modern invention. Best then by teaching an example to retrieve it, and perhaps never more importantly than now, given the toxic confusion that currently besets our culture. Now, James Barr, a famous Scottish scholar, once expressed his dismay at our rendering the underlying Aramaic, Abba, with Daddy. And I confess, he made me think. But then some years later, during a trip to Israel, I saw a six-year-old boy running, arms out after his father, crying, Abba, Abba. Now, granted, it was the 20th century. But then I very much doubt that little boys running after their dad is a 20th century innovation. The wonderful thing is this. Because we are followers of Jesus, we can now address God without flattery or ostentation, but directly and with a simplicity that might strike some of us as presumptuous. At the heart of Jesus' summons to transformation is a personal and caring father wise and strong. All kinds of obligations are implied here. His responsibility to keep and protect, to guide and to instruct, 
and so nurture us increasingly into our maturity and ours to depend on him, to listen, to obey and to look like him. From now on, those whom Jesus congratulated, the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, these, Jesus says, God is now pleased that they should call him Abba and not as protocol or mere repetition, even if it is the Lord's Prayer we are reciting, but in truth. That's a staggering thought. We are to pray then that our Father's name be held in holy regard, which means, at the very least, that it not be defiled by human willfulness, and least of all, by those of us who own his name, that then behave in ways that besmirch it. Being generous, praying and fasting in ways that honour our Father will certainly help the, uh, the development and the understanding of a holy regard toward him in our culture. And that, of course, means that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth with all that that entails. The redemption of his people and his creation and the glorification and exaltation of his name among the nations. Again, everything begins with him and hence be holy for I am holy. Although as his servants we work for him, we willingly confess that we cannot build his kingdom ourselves. Israel too knew this. The Messiah did not bring the kingdom. Only the Lord did that. Similarly, although we want our lives to honour him, and hence the sermon, it is in the end his mighty acts and his wisdom that truly magnify his name. And that's why the focus in Matthew is on Jesus. And notice all this on earth. We are here reminded that this is not a matter of waiting to be vacuumed up and out of creation. And don't forget, heaven too is also created. Unlike the so-called desert fathers, Jesus, Jesus did not seek his own individual perfection through a life of escape, nor did any of those who knew him best. Our Father is about incarnation and the restoration of his creation. May your will be done here, on earth, in the UK, among our neighbours, whom Jesus said we are to love as ourselves. Brilliantly, it seems to me, Jesus' command is not determined by race, status, sex. A little note here, uh, gender is not a Christian word, uh, not least because it says my body belongs to me instead of belonging to the Lord. Nor is it determined by culture or history. Jesus' command is not about abstract categories or critical theory, but the real and daily world of physical proximity. It's the person next door, beside me on the bus or in the checkout lane. It depends, this command, only on whomever is near to hand. As to our dependence, no one's really sure what daily bread means. It could be today's bread, or it could mean bread for the coming day, as in tomorrow, or even the bread of the great last day's supper. My guess is that it probably includes the ball. Everything is gift. And so too forgiveness. We all need it, whether or not we think we do. As God is generous in forgiving us, so ought we likewise be generous in forgiving others. Now, this is so important, it alone gets mentioned twice. Want to be forgiven by the Lord? Learn to live a life of forgiving others. Finally, we are to pray for deliverance from testing. 
This is not temptation because God never leads us into temptation. It refers instead to the time of severe trial that could lead to apostasy. We know in our own strength we cannot stand, but he alone can keep us from the evil one. Our passage concludes with the third and final righteous act, fasting. It's not about twisting God's arm, but a deeply physical expression, again, of our utter creaturely dependence. Jesus' strictures against public display created enormous problems for the post-apostolic ancient church, whose many monks turned self-denial into performance art with their confrontationally filthy clothing and unkempt appearance. Even Augustine succumbed. Jesus must have meant this spiritually. After all, how could so many monks be wrong? Well, indeed, we might well ask. But for all their spirituality, might it simply be a matter of doing their own thing anyway? Jesus' words are clear enough. No ostentatious fasting either. It's between us and our Lord and speaking of us. If my personal experience is anything to go by, those times when I have most experienced the Spirit's powerful presence were marked by regular fasting. I believe I'm not alone. Perhaps there's something to be relearned here. So then, as we go, Jesus reminds us of our insecurities, egocentricity, desperate need to be noticed, indeed loved, our fragility and utter dependence, in a word, our creatureliness. The only way forward is, in our generosity, our prayer and our fasting, to honour God and not ourselves. The only identity now that matters, transcending all others, is being a disciple of Jesus. The debate then is no longer about my rights, my lived experience, my mental health, but trust, hope and care. And the greatest of these is love, first of God and second of neighbour. Grace and peace to you all.